It's the cleansing of the temple. That's what they're all drawing right now and coloring, the cleansing of the temple. So we are in this series on the book of Mark. And uh, today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. And we're going to read one of these more famous and well-known stories and try to pick it apart and make some applications for us today. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, verse 12, I'm going to read it for you and then we're going to jump in here. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teachings. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, he saw the, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the, tr- the fig tree you cursed has withered. So, very significant story in the life of Jesus. All four of the Gospels record this event, uh, which, which brings a lot of meaning to it, just in the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all find it important enough to mention it. Um, and the cleansing of the temple, this is really the event that gets the ball rolling for Jesus' inevitable crucifixion. This is the week of the Passion, and so the cleansing of the, the temple happened on Monday, and then Jesus was crucified on Friday. And this, you could say, was really the event that broke, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. This is what really got the religious leaders to say, this guy has got to go. We got to get rid of him. Four days later, uh, they, they did, or at least they tried to. Um, in this picture, or in this event, we get a picture of Jesus in a form that we're not used to. He's really angry, and he's making a really big scene in a really public place. And so I want to spend a few minutes setting the scene for you. It's Passover. Um, every year there was three major festivals that happened in Jerusalem, Passover being the biggest one, and Jews from all over Israel and surrounding countryside would come and, and celebrate together. At that time, first century um, Jerusalem, there, it's estimated most people seem to agree that um, 80 to 100,000 people lived in Jerusalem. So slightly smaller than Kelowna was the size of Jerusalem at the time. During these festivals, it would swell. Some commentators say maybe even up to a million or two million people. Can you imagine the swelling, the population boom here? And they were coming to celebrate the Passover. They were coming to gather together as God's people. Really, really significant event Massive population bubble happening, lots of busyness, lots and lots of chaos. People would come from afar, and as you're traveling, you're not going to bring your sacrificial lamb with you all the way from Galilee. So you go to Jerusalem, and you expect to be able to buy what it is that you need in order to worship God. And so uh, the marketplace was actually set up in the temple, which we're going to see is actually a pretty big issue. Over 250,000 sheep were sacrificed at Passover, just kind of just to give you a scale of the significance of the event. I can't underscore enough how important the temple was in that day. Everything, all Jewish life centered around this building. It was here that sacrifices were offered. It's here that people would come and pray. It's here that people would come to experience and to worship God. It was even here that business was done. 
And so this, in the temple, this was the center of Hebrew life, religious, economical, and political. It was the center. It was the Jewish heartbeat, you could say. Everything revolved around this temple. And if you were a passionate pursuer of God, if you were somebody that really leaned into him and cared about him, the temple would have played a pretty significant part of your God experience. And Jesus walks in with his disciples, and he is angry. And he starts yelling at people. He starts flipping over tables, and he starts quoting Old Testament passages of Scripture. You can imagine how huge of an event this was. So I've set the scene. I want to pause and just show you a little video. This is taken from the Bible series. You can find it on Netflix. It was done a couple years ago, and it's actually really well done. So I just want to give you a bit of a visual scene of what it would have been like. Try to, in, try to put yourself in this situation. is the holiest place in the Bible. During festival times, selling sacrificial animals and changing money has become a thriving business. be called the house of prayer. But you, you have made it a den of thieves. Who are you to tell us this? We teach the law, not you. You pray lofty prayers and love your shows of piety in the temple. Hypocrites, you cannot serve God and money. gives you a visual of what that scene would have been like. I think Jesus probably would have been even more angry than was depicted there, but uh, just gives you a bit of an idea. I want to show you some pictures. I want to locate the story for you so that we can uh, kind of 
try and help understand what's going on. I was in Jerusalem a number of years ago and they have made this huge model. As you can see, those are actually real people. So it actually takes probably 10, 15 minutes to walk around it. It's amazing. That's a model of what first century Jerusalem would have been like, what it was like. And so I wish I had a pointer here, but you can see what the temple, you can see the temple. It probably takes up a quarter of Jerusalem. So think about it. Jerusalem's 100,000 people. About a quarter of it is taken up just by the temple. Just, we don't have anything like that today to even compare it to. It took up a huge amount of space and uh, really was like the centerpiece of the city. Um, and then next slide, here's a little bit of a close-up of the temple. Uh, so I try to get a bit closer there for you. See, there's a number of different entrances into the temple, and that large area that you'll see on the right hand and the left hand side, that's called the Court of the Gentiles. And so the temple was made up of several different courts, all kind of um, designed to separate different worship experiences for based on where you're at. So the larger sections to the left and to the right as you come in, that's called the Court of the Gentiles. So this is what that means. Gentiles are non-Jews, those who are not part of the Jewish faith or of the Hebrew bloodline, but it is, this is the court that is designed for those foreigners who acknowledge that, uh, that the Hebrew God is the one true God, and they want to come and worship. They want to come and seek God together. Uh, next slide. Thanks. So here's a bit of a diagram, and I'm sure none of you can actually read that because I can't, but those actually tell you where the courts are. So you go from the court of the Gentiles into kind of the main area of the temple. The next level is, is the court of women, and that's only open for Hebrew women. Um, so if a Gentile walked into that, you would be killed immediately. Like you are just, you're not allowed to walk in there. Then it goes from the court of women into the court of men. And then after that, you get into the real holy sacred area where only the priests would go. So the court of priests, and then you get into the holy of holies, which is kind of where that uh, taller part is. So that's what the temple, that kind of just gives you a bit of a visual of the temple. There are kind of these layers of worship experiences. So the largest part, the, the largest court, the largest part is designed for foreigners who acknowledge God to come and to pray and to worship. And it is there that this market is happening. So as you walk into the temple, instead of it being a place for foreigners to come and worship and to seek God, instead of that, what, what, what Jesus and his disciples found was a whole bunch of money changers and a whole bunch of people selling uh, animals. And you can imagine um, the offense that was to God. Um, at this point in history, there was actually quite a number of non-Jews that recognized that uh, the Hebrew God was the one true God, and they genuinely did want to come and worship. They genuinely did want to come and participate in these religious activities. And so, um, can you just imagine trying to, to, you're a foreigner and you want to come and worship God, and this court of the Gentiles is where that's supposed to happen, and there's all this chaos happening, and there's people selling things, and there's animals everywhere, and there's money changers. Imagine trying to like really genuinely seek God in that setting. It'd be like us, let's say we really want to have like this amazing worship, prayerful experience, and we're going to go park ourselves in the middle of the Kelowna Farmer's Market. It's busy. There's people everywhere. There's market stuff going on. It's, it'd be really difficult to like really have this quiet uh, prayerful experience there, right? And, and that would have just been magnified so much more there. So basically what the Jewish establishment, establishment had done is they had eliminated the space for foreigners, for non-Jews to come and worship God and instead they have filled it up with marketplace activity and Jesus is absolutely furious. And he quotes a, a passage from Isaiah. 
we see two Old Testament quotes here, which I think are pretty indicative of what makes Jesus so angry. The first one, he says, my house is called a house of prayer for all nations. So this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 56. Uh, if you've got time today, go back and read Isaiah 56. It's a brilliant passage of scripture. And it talks about how God has designed the temple and the, and the Jewish nation as a whole to, be in, to include all the nations and to be a light to all the nations so that other people groups are to look at them and look at the temple and see that this is a place where the living God dwells and they are to be drawn in. And so Isaiah 56 is this amazing picture of, of how much God loves all people. He's not just separated for a specific people group. And so my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. But instead of creating the space uh, for foreigners to come and worship God, uh, the Jewish establishment fills it with animals, money changers, and markets. And then the second quote, and I want to spend a bit more time looking at this one, is Instead, you've made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Now, this is a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is a prophet who spoke several hundred years before, um, before Christ. And he's speaking to the Israelite people right before they're about to go into exile. And, th and the book of Jeremiah, a good chunk of it is about what has gone wrong. Where, ha where have the Israelites gone wrong and why are they about to go into exile? So it's a book of warning and it's a book of prophecy. And in there, we get a really great picture of what really matters to God. And so I want to read this whole section for you. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 is up on the screen. So this is Jeremiah speaking uh, the Lord, uh, God's words to the people. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods uh, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever." Let's just stop there. Jeremiah is saying, don't think you're okay because you got the temple. Don't think that somehow because you have the temple, you can just go ahead and live however you want to. In your actions, you need to show that you care about God. You need to care about the poor and the foreigner, and you need to stop shedding blood, and you need to stop worshiping other gods. Verse 8, but look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal? And follow other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? Is that what it is? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So God, through Jeremiah, is saying, you come to the temple all you want, but it absolutely means nothing if it's not reflected in your actions. And the people back then, and one of the reasons they went into exile and God took away their nation from them is because they didn't care about the poor, they didn't care about the oppressed, they were killing people, they were worshiping other idols, but they still kept their religious actions. And God just says, I don't care about your religion if it doesn't affect the way you treat others and the way you live out your faith. Stop doing these things because what you're doing is you're making the temple a den of robbers. God's not impressed by our religion on Sundays if it doesn't make any difference to, to us the rest of the week. Imagine how the Jewish people would have heard this. The religious leaders and most of the Israelites of that day would have had the whole Old Testament memorized. So it says 
you've made this a den of robbers, they know exactly what he's referring to. Automatically, their minds are going to Jeremiah 7, and they're going, you're comparing what we're doing here with what they did back then? How dare you? It is like the ultimate insult. You're comparing our temple experience with what happened back then, and you're, you're calling us, this place, a den of robbers, as bad as it was back then? So this is like the ultimate slap in the face for the religious leaders of the day. And you can see why, four days later, you know, they, uh, they, they try to kill Jesus. What an insult. So the cleansing of the temple, Jesus, he is making a prophetic declaration that what's happening in the current culture of religion is broken and it's ultimately a disgrace to the God that they claim to be worshiping. That's, what, that's what's going on here. Empty religion is an offense to God. It's an absolute offense to God and that's the significance of this event. That's, why, that's what is being portrayed in the cleansing of the temple. Now, I want to turn our attention to the fig tree. I want to try and bring this all to some sort of practical application for us today. So, let's be honest. At first reading, this fig tree is a really strange event. Jesus is hungry. He sees a tree. He expects to find fruit. There's no fruit. And he takes out his wrath on that tree. And you might go, what is going on here? It's almost like he had a weak moment, right? It's almost like Jesus got hangry. Do you know what hangry is? I get hangry. Especially when I was younger, Laura would carry around granola bars for me because I'd get hangry. I'd get hungry and then I'd get angry. And so she'd feed me and it would like calm my anger issues down. It's almost like that's what's going on with Jesus. He's hungry. This tree is not producing anything and he just, he goes crazy on the tree. Well, that's not actually what's going on here. Um, Let's try to understand how we're supposed to read this. And like everything, context is the key. I want you to notice where the story is located. It's sandwiched between the cleansing of the temple, right? The story starts with the fig tree, and then you got the cleansing of the temple, and then it ends with the fig tree. So these are not two separate stories. This is one story, and it's meant to be read as one story. It's all meant to be read together. And the fig tree is a metaphor for Israel. It's a metaphor for the temple, for the, for the, for the worshiping life of the community. So Jesus, he sees leaves, and he expects to find fruit. Well, you might wonder why it's not the season for figs, and Mark is pretty clear about telling us that. Well, I went and did some research, and apparently fig trees, and this is pretty common back then, and it's impossible for us to really know this now, but when a fig tree started bearing uh, leaves, simultaneously it would also bear um, little kind of almond-like nubs that you could eat. You could eat those. And those, um, those... they're small knobs, and those things are a prerequisite for the fig. And so they would, these almond things would grow, they'd fall off, and then figs would come afterwards. And so that was pretty normal. And for travelers, if you see a wild fig tree that somebody else doesn't own, and there's leaves, you would expect to find something edible on there. And so, it, so it's, not, it's not strange that Jesus didn't expect, to, or that Jesus expected to find something edible. Not figs, but the small almond-like nub, and there's nothing there which means because there's no almond-type nubs, it also means that there's not going to be any figs. And so on the outside, this fig tree looks really healthy, but on the inside, clearly something is wrong. Um, It's obviously got a disease or something. And so uh, on the outside, everything looks good. On the inside, the fig tree is essentially not doing what it is supposed to do. And so the cursing of this fig tree, it's not an impulsive act. It's not some sort of misguided, irresponsible gesture. This is a deliberate, highly instructive warning. Fruitless fig trees are useless. Spiritless religion is useless. 
That's really the message of this event. And so here's the point. And I think this is a challenge for us. If we're God's people, there needs to be fruit in our life that shows evidence of that. There needs to be a fruit in our life that shows evidence that, yes, I'm following Jesus. Yes, he is my Lord and Savior. Yes, I've, I've, sold, I've sold out for him, and, I, and I'm following him with my life. We are called as Christians, you and I, to be people who represent God in this world. Back then, the temple represented God in, in the world. The people, were to look at, people were to look at the temple and see, be drawn to God. Well, it's no longer about the temple, and it's no longer about the building. You know what it's about? It's about us. It's about the fact that God dwells within us by his Holy Spirit, and we are now called God's representatives. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the people, you're now the temple of God. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit does dwell in you today, you are God's temple, modern-day temple. And then with that carries a responsibility, a responsibility to represent him on earth just the way the temple and the religious life of that day was supposed to draw other people to God. That is now our God-given role. It's no longer about a building. And so this is what this means for us today. It means that wherever we go, we carry with us the responsibility to represent Christ. In our homes, with our kids, with our grandkids, with our parents, with our siblings, at school, with your friends, on your sports teams, how you conduct yourself, in your universities, at work, whether you're an employer or an employee, in every aspect of your life, you are called to represent God in this world because you are his temple. And we've been given the call to be ambassadors for Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians says. You are ambassadors for Christ. We carry with us a responsibility to represent him. It means that what we say we believe about God and about Jesus drastically affects every part of our life, the everydayness, mundane mundane aspects of our life. We represent God. And so the fig tree is an object lesson for Israel back then, but it's also an object lesson for us now, that our religion is only worthwhile religion if it's producing fruit, if there is evidence of God within us to those around us. God's not interested in our religious activities if our lives don't reflect a commitment to being a follower, a genuine follower of Jesus. We see that in Jeremiah. The people are still going through the motions, right? They're going through the motions of religion, but God says, I don't care because you're not actually living like a God follower. You're cheating and stealing. You don't care about the poor or the oppressed. You're killing people, and yet you still think you're religious because you show up to the temple. doesn't work. Spiritless religion and it's offense to God. And so I think this is a challenge for us, a challenge for us who say that we're following Jesus to live fruitful and meaningful lives. But I also want to say that it's also an inspiration. I'm challenged when I read this, but I'm also inspired. I'm inspired because God has called each and every one of us to join him in his mission, to represent God in this world, to represent God to our neighbors, to represent God to our kids. It's an inspiration because God has given us purpose and hope and meaning. Now we know what we're here for, and we know how we're supposed to center our lives. We know the foundation upon which we're supposed to build our lives. And so, yes, I'm challenged, but yes, I'm also very much inspired that I'm a temple of God, and I'm called to represent him. I've been given this beautiful call to live out, and now I know what my life is about and how I'm supposed to move forward. And so, challenge and inspiration. So that's the, ten- that's the cleansing of the temple, 
and the withering of the fig tree, and I think this gives us a beautiful picture of what God really does desire from us and what he calls us to do. So there it is. Hope that was short enough to keep you kids interested. <laughs> Let me pray, and then I'm going to invite Sean to come on up, and then we're going to join together and have some soup. God, I thank you so much that we get to gather here together as a whole community. God, we thank you for our kids and for our youth. God, we thank you for what matters to you, that we see your heart shine out so well in this passage, a heart for a meaningful life and a heart for a meaningful spiritual life, God. And I pray that we would live that out, that we would recognize our call to be ambassadors and uh, to represent you in our world. So God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.